Can God use just ordinary me? You know, we think of the people from the Bible and we go, oh, man. And that's kind of why we're doing this series. I mean, but you know what? Before Joseph became Joseph, before Jonah became Jonah, they were just ordinary people. And God used them. That's, that's the beauty of this series, Tough Jobs in the Bible, is that the people God used weren't famous at that point. They weren't spectacular. They were just ordinary people that God put his hand on and said, I have something for you to do. Which means he can use us. This morning, we're looking at Esther. And we never think of her as queen of Persia. We think of her as Esther. Oh, that's right. She saved the nation of Israel. But her real title was Esther, Queen of Persia. But before she became Queen of Persia, she was just an ordinary girl. And God put his hand upon her and gave her a job. For Esther to become the Queen of Persia, to save her people from genocide. That was her mission. But before she had that mission, she was just an ordinary teenage girl. Before we dig into this, I want to take a moment to pray. And I'd like us to think about, God, how can you use ordinary me? God, we thank you. We thank you for the great events that have been recorded in history of people that you put your hand upon who did amazing, extraordinary things. God, for many of us, that's our prayer, that you would do extraordinary things with us. God, we pray that you would put your hand on us today and reveal to us where we might make a difference. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So for those of you that aren't real familiar with the book of Esther, I want to start by just saying, we often talk about, oh, that's right, it's the story of Esther. But I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. It's not just a story like a fairy tale. It's a story that's based in fact. So, so when you read the newspaper, right, you, when you talk to somebody said, hey, did you catch the paper? Did you read the, what's the word you fill in the blank with? <laughs> I was going with story, but hey, okay. Um, yeah, did you read that story? We never go, oh, and by the way, it's just a fairy tale. We take it as events that occur. When, we, when I talk about Esther being a story, I want you to think of it in the context that it is real events, not a Disney fairy tale. All right. So let me just give you the backdrop and the main characters for the story. So the first one is Esther. It's named after her. And obviously she's the heroine of the story. She's also a 15 or 16-year-old girl that's orphaned, that her parents have passed away. And she is raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And basically he takes her into his home and raises her as his own daughter. As she grows up and matures, he becomes her confidant and advisor. 
Then there's Haman. Every, every great story needs a villain. And Haman is the villain of the events of this story. He's one of the king's advisors and one of the men in power over the kingdom of Persia. And then we have Mordecai, which I've already alluded to, but he's actually a secondary hero of the story. We don't think of him that way very often. We think of Esther being the hero. But, but in many ways, Mordecai is an amazing hero, but he's in the shadows. He's, he's one of the people in the royal court of the king, but he's in the background helping give Esther wisdom and advice. So then there's the uh, support cast, and there's King Xerxes. He is the king of Persia. Xerxes is the name we know him from the Bible. But if you went to other historical documents from that time period, he would be known as King Aceris. I probably said that wrong, but it's okay. All right. And then along with him is Queen Vashti. And when we say supporting role for her, we mean brief role for her. She gets one verse in the entire story. But it's a critical verse because it lays the foundation of all the events that are to come. So the events of Queen Esther happened during the conquering of kingdoms in the Middle East. And in earlier messages, if you were here for Jonah, you heard of how you know, Jonah was sent to Nineveh. It was one of the conquering nations. But they were only one of them. They happened to just be the first one. And that was the Assyrians. Around 880 B.C. through 605 B.C., the Assyrians ascended and basically took over much of the Middle East. And their kingdom was about that size. It went down to Egypt, up through eastern Turkey, down through Iran, and, and that was their conquered territory. And the events of that time were Israel was captured, the 11 tribes of Israel were captured and taken away. Judah was left behind, so the capital of Jerusalem was still there. It's also the time of Nineveh being the capital of the Syrian Empire. So two weeks ago, if you were here when we talked about Jonah, going to Nineveh because of all of their horrific things they did, it's during this time period. It's during these historical events that Jonah is on the scene. As their power wanes around 605 B.C., a portion of their kingdom revolts, and that would be the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians raised from 605 to 539 B.C., and they basically took over the exact same territory as the Assyrians. They just became more powerful, and they conquered basically from Egypt up through eastern Turkey, and they went just a little bit farther into modern-day Iraq. Well, they didn't like the capital being in Nineveh, so they moved the capital to Babylon. So when we think of the Babylonian era, Jerusalem is conquered by them. The remaining nobles, the remaining leadership of, of the nation of Israel is taken into captivity, taken to Babylon. So we think of, this would be the time period of Daniel. And you might think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those young men that were taken out of their nation and moved to the new capital to be trained up. But their power waned in 539. And the Persians ascended to power. 
And the Persians reigned from 539 through 332 B.C. So if you're thinking chronologically, we're moving closer and closer to the time of Jesus. And they didn't like the capital being in Babylon, so they moved it to Susa. And this is the time of Esther. And this is the size of their kingdom. Basically from Libya to Ethiopia, from Greece to Russia, and down to India. They had conquered much of the known world as we know it. And King Xerxes is on the throne. And King Xerxes is an egomaniac. I mean, the names he gave himself was King of Kings, King of All Kings, Pharaoh of Egypt, the Great One, and he also thought of himself as a god. Because in his mind, there's nothing left to conquer. And all of it belongs to me. And when he moved the capital to Susa, he took years to build his new capital fortress. It took him three years to do that, just to build his own shrine to himself. And at the end of those three years, he decided, let's party. And he brought all of his leadership, all of the provincial kings that were under him, kind of these second-rate kings that he had conquered, but he left them in power. He brought all of that nobility, all of those kings to Susa for one massive party to celebrate his greatness. And that's where we pick up Esther chapter 1. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, think kings, or mini-kings, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa in the third year of his reign. And, and I highlighted that because the writer of Esther, once you understand, this is real events. These are real people, real places, real dates in time. And you can cross-reference them from other historical writings of that time period that go, oh, this matches up with Esther. And I point that out because often people go, oh yeah, that Old Testament, man, it's just hard to believe that's really real. The author of Esther wanted us to understand it's real. This happened. And I can give you places, dates, and names. So he does. So he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. Now, just the thought of a 180-day party is somewhat beyond me, and maybe a college student might go, oh, that's just my first year in college, but, but the rest of us go, whoa, that is way beyond us. You know what he was saying to everyone? It's good to be the king. It's really good to be the king. I have all this wealth, all this power. All of you come to see me. All of you come to my special party. And it's all about me and my stuff. And when the 180-day party ended, what do you think he did? He said, one more time. 
and he threw another seven-day party. But this time he opened it up to everybody in the city, along with all of his royal buddies, and continued partying. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, okay, that's, that right away should be like, this is going to be bad. He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, I'm just going to call them the seven dwarfs because I can't do their names, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty. So I picture this. During those seven days, he's with his buddies and he's in his big man cave. And he goes, hey, do you guys know my, my queen is really pretty? And by day two, he goes, hey, did I tell you guys my queen is really, really hot? And by seven, he's like, hey, you should see my queen because she's pretty amazing. Which leads me to a couple things. One, seven days of drinking, bad idea. Two, never make decisions at the end of seven days of drinking. Because here's what happened. When they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. And this made the king furious and he burned with anger. You know, I got to give credit to Queen Vashti. She knew nothing good is going to come from me showing up. Nothing good. Nothing about me being basically his trinket. And some of the some of the historians of that time period, when, when they look at that, they reference it, they think the comments of, hey, bring Queen Vashti to me with her royal crown, they think possibly they meant that's all they wanted her to be wearing. Because she was his prize. She wasn't his wife. She belonged to him. And he just wanted to show her off to his buddies. And she says, I'm not doing nothing like that. No, thank you. She stood up for herself to the king who thinks he's a god. So when you read and he burned with anger, you understand why, don't you? I'm the most important human being on earth and you said no. That just doesn't cut it. Which immediately led to the first Miss Persia pageant. Because she was immediately banished by him and his nobles because his drunken buddy said, this was really bad. If, if she can say no to you, then our wives might start saying no to us. And that isn't good. So they talked him into banishing Vashti and looking for a new queen. That sets the stage for Esther. Because as they begin the Miss Persia, Persia pageant, she's an entrant. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. And they took a year preparing each one of these girls to go before the king. And after the year of their beauty treatments, and maybe the treatments look something like that. No, actually, that's the 1940s. So women, be grateful. Now you just put mud and cucumbers on your face. Much better. 
but beauty treatments for a year. Then they would be brought to the king. More specifically, to the king's bed for one night. And then they would be moved off with all of his other possessions. Never to be heard from or seen again in his mind unless he really, really remembered them. So Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. So just think for a moment, when was the party? Year three. When does he see Esther? Year seven. Miss Persia pageant has been running for four years. And he hasn't found the queen he likes, that he wants. Four years of basically Xerxes going, I am do all this because I am the king. So she has her one evening with the king. And after, and after, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. The pageant was finally over. Now, most of us think, wow, she gets to be queen. What happened next? Well, just think about King Xerxes for a moment. What do you think he would do? Let's party. Exactly. Let's party and show off my new queen. And if it was a Disney story, it would be, and they lived happily ever after the end of the story. But this isn't Disney. And she's not a Disney princess or a Disney queen. And the truth is, none of us would want Esther's life for our girls. Because basically what we're talking about is slaves, possessions, and they were sexual slaves. They went into the king's harem. They never had a chance for a real life to marry a real husband, to experience real love, to have children of their own. That wasn't what they got. And it's not the end of the story for Esther. Because from that point on, there are very dark days ahead. Dark days for the nation of Israel and dark days for Esther that will come. And immediately as you continue reading through the events of Esther, you find out that there is intrigue in the palace. Not all of Xerxes' bodyguards, princes, nobles liked him, surprisingly. And there is a plan afoot to actually have him assassinated by some of his own royal bodyguards. And Mordecai hears of this plan. You're wondering when we get to Mordecai. Mordecai hears of this plan and he informs Esther of what's about to happen so that she can take it to the king and save his life. Pretty impressive that Mordecai would care because Mordecai is Jewish. He's one of the many people that were taken into captivity. The other intriguing piece is when 
Esther was brought into the harem, Mordecai gave her one piece of advice. Never let him know you're Jewish. Don't tell him about your heritage. Don't tell him about your lineage. So Mordecai comes along and saves Xerxes' life during these dark days. Then along came Haman. And Haman was one of those nobles that was running the kingdom of Persia. But as he continued to run it, King Xerxes kind of caught his eye and decided that I'm going to elevate him to be my vice king, for lack of a better word, and, and puts him in charge of everything. And he puts out a royal decree that everyone has to bow down to Haman and basically worship him also as the, the king's right-hand man. So we read this in Esther 3. Sometime later, King Xerxes, and, and here's where the timeline, we kind of lose the exact moments because we were going very specifically from year 3 to year 7, and now it's just time has passed. But King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect or act in worship of him whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down and show him respect. So think for a moment about all these ego-driven maniacs. And then you've got Mordecai, who refuses to bow down. And you have to ask, well, why? What's the big deal? Why can't Mordecai just, you know, just even lean a little bit, right? Just, just give him a lean. And the answer is, because Mordecai is Jewish. And I will not worship anyone. I will not bow down to anyone other than the one true God. Well, you can probably guess how delighted Haman was with that behavior. As a matter of fact, it so offended him, so upset him, that Haman gets a royal decree to kill all the Jews in the entire Persian kingdom. And he had special plans for Mordecai. He was going to personally put him to death so that everyone would know I am the vice king and don't mess. So in the month of April, again, back to real dates, real events, right? So in the month of April, during the 12th year, so now we have a timeline again, right? 3, 7, 12, Vashti has been now queen for eight years. Lots were cast in Haman's presence, and, and lots were basically it was a form of gambling that they used to kind of decide what to do. If you remember back to two weeks ago with Jonah, they cast lots on the boat to see who was who was the person that had offended the gods, and they fell to Jonah, right? So now they're using lots in this kingdom to decide what day 
they will obliterate the Jews. And the lots were called Purim. And just hang on to that, because at the very end, you're going to understand something about the Jewish nation. But hang on to that. The lots were called Purim. And they were used to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. So in the 12th year, in April, he makes this decision, gets this decree that we're going to kill all the Jews next March. They have 11 months to prepare. 11 months to gear up, to basically commit genocide. And it took them all that time because, remember, this edict had to go out through all of the nation, right? So it has to go from Susa all the way down to Egypt, from Susa all the way to Greece, from Susa all the way to India. And it's giving permission to every other person that has a gripe or grievance against someone who's Jewish to kill them. It's in this context that Mordecai can't stand by any longer. He hears about this being one of the royal cabinet. And he goes to Esther. And he makes a request of her. And here's his request. He asks Hathach to direct Esther to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. Now remember, up until this time, she has kept it a secret that she's Jewish. The king has no idea that the edict he had just sent out was against his queen. There's great hesitation on her part to go forward to the king. Because of him thinking he's a god, basically to come in his presence without being invited could be a death sentence. So she has to wrestle with that, that if I approach the king and, and, and he hasn't asked for me, my life's on the line. There was a lot at stake. But Mordecai gives her these words, and these are the words that resonate with me and I hope with all of us. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He says, Esther, you're an ordinary girl, but maybe you're in this position because God has great plans for you. God's going to use you. He also followed that up, and I didn't put that in the text, but he also said, and if you choose not to, I know God can still save the nation, and he will save the nation but you will miss out. So Esther agrees to do it. And what do you think she did to meet with the king? Let's party. That's right. She's talking his language. She approaches the king and says, hey, I would love to throw a special dinner for you and Haman. Could we have a special dinner just for the two of you? And, of course, the king, with his ego, goes, that's a great idea. So she throws him this lavish dinner. And at the end of the dinner, he says to her, all right, Esther, is there anything you would want up to half of my kingdom? And I'll give it to you. And she goes, um, let me think about that. 
Yeah. Let's party one more time. Do you think she knows how to, how to work with this king? Oh, yeah. She, she's speaking his language. And she throws another party and says, oh, and by the way, make sure Hammond comes to that one too. So Hammond thinks, man, the queen personally asked me to come to the king's dinner. It's just proof that I am special. So she throws this dinner again. And at the end of that dinner, Xerxes says to her, all right, Esther, you've thrown me two wonderful feasts. Whatever you would like, I'll give it to you. And this is what she says next. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life be spared and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we were merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial of a matter, just disturbing the king. Man, she is playing all into his ego, isn't she? Uh, if we were just slaves, that wouldn't be enough to bother you. But this, this, is, this is enough. The king responds, who would do such a thing? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Remember, my possession. And Esther replied, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Man, talk about crash and burn. I have these great plans. I'm going to get rid of my enemy. I am second in command. The queen really likes me. And everything turns. Everything turns upside down for him. And as a result of that courage, that moment in time, Esther saves her people. And I'm not going to go into all the minutia of what happens next, but the reality is there's a decree out for anyone to slaughter the Jews that wants to, and, and the king can't take back any royal law he's ever made. But he can make new ones. And he makes an additional decree that says, hey, on March 7th, all of the Jewish people can defend themselves and fight back, and I authorize them to do whatever it takes to survive. And when March 7th comes, because the Jews are prepared, because the Jews have been given permission to defend themselves, because they have organized, they are not overwhelmed, they are not overcome, and they end up victorious over those who attack them. And as a result of that, if you are Jewish, you celebrate the Feast of Purim. Somewhere around March 7th, their calendar doesn't always match up with ours, but it's right around March 7th to March 14th. And it's the Feast of Purim. Remember the lots that were cast to decide the date? They remember that day, and guess what they do? They party, exactly. They have a celebration, they have a great dinner. It's, it's a, a dinner of thanksgiving, basically, 
for God had protected the nation of Israel using Esther. But none of that would have happened unless Mordecai had asked her the question, is it such a time as this? This moment, right here, right now, that God has put you in this place to influence a king. Now, as I think about this story, the reality for me is we are all Esther. I mean, we think of ourselves as ordinary people placed in ordinary lives, and yet God can use that for extraordinary purposes. But we have to be aware. We have to be attuned to it, don't we? We have to be looking for those opportunities or they will pass by. So the question is, where are you positioned to make a difference? Where can you make an impact? And it may be God has positioned you to be a great mom, a great dad, a great coworker, a great manager, a great leader, a great educator to be used at the right moment. This spring, I, I hung up my coaching clipboard. Twelve years, I decided was it was the t- right time to stop being the coach for the Pine Island girls soccer team. And I put that aside, and I decided to try something different. I was invited to be one of the officials for the soccer programs. So I turned over and went to the dark side. All right. I'm now one of the guys that they all yell at. And it all came to pass because of an event that happened a year and a half ago. And I think of it as one of those such a time as this moments. I was meeting with one of the officials, and we became friends over the years. After 12 years, either they really like you or really don't like you, and you really like them or really don't like them. I mean, there's all those moments, right? And we were talking. He was reffing the game, and and we're talking before the game started. And and I said, how are you doing? He goes, okay, but this will be my last game for this year. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, on Thursday, I'm going in for throat cancer surgery. And I don't know what's going to come of that. So we talked for a moment or two, and, and, and I really, he was really a really nice guy. And I said, hey, do you have, do you have support people in your life that are, that are aware of what's going on, and are they going to be there for you? He goes, yeah, I've got a few of those. And then I decided to take a bigger risk and went, do you have a church do you, do you go to a church? Do you have, are, are you a person of faith? He goes, yeah, I have a church. And he tells me the church. I said, oh, it's like, great. I said, are you connected that they can come and visit? And he goes, no, no one's going to probably visit me. So I took one more step and I said, can I come visit you? He goes, yeah, I'd like that. So the day after his surgery, I went up to his room and, and, uh, I was immediately stopped by a nurse outside his door and said, he's not allowed to have visitors. You don't get to go in. Sorry, too bad. And then there was a commotion in the room. And his wife came out and said, he really wants to see him. So I got to go in and, and we talked with a whiteboard. And I brought him a Sudoku puzzle and a crossword puzzle and just some stuff to keep him busy because he couldn't talk to anybody, right? And out of that, a friendship has grown. And when he knew I was going to stop coaching, he says, why don't you join me? 
and be an official with me. So that's what led to this change and, and kind of this new chapter. And, and here's what I'm finding out. We wrapped up the season this week and um, 60 officials got together and kind of had pizza and hung out and talked and chatted about the year. And, and I all of a sudden realized God's opened the door for 60 new relationships that I can influence. And whether it's good or bad, they all know I'm a pastor. And the reason I know that is because I was the brunt of one of their jokes that night. <laughs> they start talking about coaches that had been really bad coaches and coaches that they had thrown out of games. And one guy starts going, oh, man, there was this one coach, man. He was all over me and yelling at me and screaming at me. And, and finally, I just tossed him from the game with a red card. And, and three days later, I found out he was a minister. All their heads swivel to me, and I go, not me. So not me. It was not me. But I'm in a position, and I have no idea. Honestly, I have no idea what the future holds for that. But if I don't pay attention, I'm going to miss it. And I think that's what God is calling us to be. Just more aware, more attuned. Where are you positioned to make a difference? Have you thought about it? Otherwise, we're going to look back and go, oh, I wish I would have. And I don't think any of us want that for our lives. God uses me, an ordinary person. And I think God uses you as ordinary people, if we say, I'm willing. And I think that's the story of Esther. It's not really a story about the history of Israel. It's a story about willingness to be used by God. Let's pray. God, this morning, our I believe our heart's desire as followers of Jesus, is it to be used by you. God, this week, make us more aware of opportunities. Make us more prepared to be bold, step out, speak up, and live out our life of faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen.